Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 122, The Pearl Harbor That Almost Wasn't. Last time, November 2nd, 1941, was a day of fate for the Empire of Japan and the United States. By then, the military had browbeat the emperor. The Japanese fleet that would attack Pearl Harbor had gathered, and the latest and best offer Tokyo was willing to make with Washington was far short of what FDR would be or could be willing to accept. Two days later, November 4th, American listening stations picked up a new military force, which they called One No Kuk Kantai. It was, in fact, the first air fleet practicing for its attack on Pearl. The results were better than expected, but now that they had a live run-through, tweaks would be made to improve further the destructive capability of the coming air raid. On November 6th, Prime Minister Tojo declared he was more determined than ever to make sure Japan would not revert to a third world power. He then turned to Foreign Minister Togo and asked of Ambassador Nomura's progress. Togo, initially against the war, replied that, as hard as Nomura was trying, the Americans were not willing to compromise, and were now, and had been, attempting to crush the empire by economic means. As for future prospects, if things go as they are going now, I regret that the negotiations do not have any prospect of a quick resolution. The key word here was quick. Japan's oil supplies were running lower each day, and that would only speed up as war drew closer. The foreign minister then seemed to support the war, as he spoke of saving Asia from the Western powers, who were using its resources to enrich and empower themselves. To wit, a war with the United States now not only had economic and national pride aspects, but also a moral basis. Asia for Asians. With the meeting done, Chief of the Imperial Japanese Navy General Staff Nagano ordered Yamamoto to ready the fleet for war with the United States and Britain. The conflict would begin in 30 days. And yet, Yamamoto chose this moment to, once again, stress that Japan could not win a drawn-out war. Would it not be better for the emperor to pull out of its treaty with Germany and Italy and withdraw its troops from all or most of China? However, his concerns must be taken with a grain of salt. During the month of November, the last of peace, Foreign Minister Togo sent Ambassador Nomura at least 11 messages, stressing the need to deliver the Americans in regards to some understanding. November 29th would be the last day for talks, and if the ambassador failed, the Foreign Minister said, Asia would be on the brink of chaos. As November went by, the urgency only increased for the Japanese, as it would obviously be preferable to get oil from America while being able to keep and hopefully expand their possessions on the mainland, rather than going to war. 
But as Washington had read each and every one of Togo's messages, the Americans were in much less of a hurry. Of course, they did not know of Yamamoto's fleet, readying for Pearl at the same time. Or did they? As Nomura parroted the phrases sent to him by Togo, last effort reached the edge, showing the limits of our friendship, making our last possible bargain. It was CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, Lieutenant, Vice CNO, Royal Ingersoll, that said, These messages only make sense if Japan was planning an attack on ABCD territories in Asia, i.e. American, British, Chinese, and or Dutch. However, due to racial prejudices and a sense of superiority, and this will be given more study, closer to the raid on Pearl Harbor, practically everyone else was convinced that an attack on so many locations at the same time was impossible for little Japan. Hence, Ingersoll's observation was ignored. However, November 6th, the day Tojo all but declared war during the cabinet meeting, the leaders of the United States had their own revelation. Secretary of State Hall was holding a meeting with his State Department officials. His conclusion at the time, relations have become extremely critical and that we should be on the lookout for an attack by Japan at any time. But to this, FDR would exclaim, do not let the talks deteriorate. Let us make no more of ill will. Do nothing to precipitate the crisis. For just previous to this meeting, General Marshall and CNO Stark finally opened up to the President about the real situation in the Pacific. At the moment, Japan's fleet was bigger and better than theirs. That war should be delayed until such time as the situation could be rectified. However, Hull and Atchison, the man responsible for launching the oil embargo that FDR did not feel that he could rescind, still felt that one good jerk from America would force the Japanese to back down. Hence, Secretary Hull continued with the line that Tokyo had to leave China and Indochina before Japan could once again buy U.S. petroleum. On November 10th, Ambassador Nomura met with Hall and FDR. There, the president took a softer line. The two countries had to find a way to continue the talks and work with each other, despite their differing goals. Not merely an expedient and temporary agreement, but also one which takes into account actual human existence, FDR said. This moved the ambassador. At last, the Americans were willing to compromise. However, on that same day, Captain Hankyu Sasaki was ordered to report to a naval base near Hiroshima to collect his 1st submarine division, which was feverishly being updated, and it would include the ability to transport midget submarines. He was then told, this equipment is to enable you to take your midget subs close enough to Pearl Harbor to attack the U.S. Pacific Fleet. The midget subs were to follow U.S. ships into the harbor when the anti-torpedo nets were lowered 
However, they would also have wire cutters installed in front of them, just in case. Five of them would be making the trip to Hawaii. During the second week of November, the Japanese torpedo bombers practiced their attack runs. As things stood, their hit rate was at 66%. But by ignoring their altimeters and eyeballing the waves just underneath their wings, that number was raised to 82%. As one pilot put it, we flew totally by the seat of our pants. But to increase their striking power even further, their spies at Pearl were to increase the details of their reports. Of course, these were picked up by magic, but during November, the various listening posts were obsessed, and frankly, overworked, in focusing on the Japanese consulate messages coming to Ambassador Nomura. On the 15th, the military leaders met in Tokyo, at the Imperial Palace, to explain to Hirohito their plan for war. It was titled, ironically, Draft Proposal for Hastening the End of the War Against the United States, Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Chiang Kai-shek. Simply, their plan was to defeat the American and British navies in the Pacific, bring Stalin's Russia within the Axis Partnership, how that was to happen with Germany and Russia currently in a life-and-death struggle was left unclear. But most importantly, the plan called for crushing the American people's spirit for battle by its daring raid on Pearl Harbor. As touched on briefly, the Westerners, in this case American, condescension towards the Japanese was such that General George Marshall was hoping to buy his country more time when he talked to three reporters off the record. Of course, in reality, he hoped that what he said would find its way to Tokyo somehow. The general told the men that by the spring of 1942, the United States would have so many bombers stationed in the Philippines that if the Japanese were to declare war, their home islands would be carpet-bombed in immediate retaliation and, hopefully, into submission. But when one reporter who knew something of the Flying Fortresses offered that the bombers did not have the range to attack Japan and return to the Philippines, this was ignored. Either way, Marshall got what he wanted. The men wrote of the U.S.'s attempt to beef up their military presence throughout the Pacific. And that alone would be, to some, enough to deter the Japanese from doing something foolhardy. Something that would get them into trouble with Washington. And yet, there is so much that does not connect about this. The United States was hoping to delay the war they knew was coming. But as Marshall told the reporters, the danger period is in the first ten days of December. As in, once winter proper comes, the seas will be too rough for mass travel. But at the same time, the Americans wanted the Japanese to strike first. However, they wanted to have some say in when the fighting started. The only way this makes sense is Western arrogance. Practically no one in an American or British uniform took the fighting prowess of the Japanese soldier seriously. 
Moreover, their technology was looked down on as well. But in fact, the Zero Fighter, as we will see, was far superior to anything the Americans had, as were many of their bombers, and the majority of Japanese pilots had years of combat experience from China. As the saying goes in chess, play the board, not the person sitting on the other side. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. On November 17th, Admiral Yamamoto, from his flagship, Nagato, watched as his fleet sailed from their assembled location. That same day, Ambassador Nomura introduced a new man to Secretary Hall and FDR. This was Saburu Kurusu, the former ambassador to Nazi Germany. Kurusu was pro-American, had an American wife, and spoke almost perfect English. The man, when he was informed that he would be assisting Nomura, brought himself up to speed on the situation and read all the messages between the two capitals. He then told Tojo that the talks seemed to be going well, that is, until July of that year, when Japan occupied Indochina. He told his leader his guess was that there was a 30% chance of a successful negotiation with the Americans. Tojo was warmed by this and stressed that he wanted the talks to work. However, he also told Kurusu that Japanese troops would never leave China. The country had sacrificed many lives to take what they had, which, of course, flew in the face of Plan A, currently being offered to Washington, a gradual pullout of their troops from China. Plan B, still on the deck, was a faster withdrawal from southern Indochina and a long-term pullout of Indochina and China. Neither would satisfy the Americans, and Tojo knew this. But Kurusu, for all his pro-American views, was already stuck between a rock and a hard place, even before meeting the president. The Americans had one view of Kurusu. He was the man photographed with Hitler after signing the Tripartite Pact for Japan. As for his own countrymen, 
those who wanted war, strongly mistrusted Caruso because of his Yankophile attitude. They could only hope his plane would crash before reaching Washington. Be that as it may, Caruso got off on the right foot with FDR when he told the president during their first meeting that he had not been sent to browbeat the Americans, but to only help in finding a way to keep the peace. This brought a smile to the president's face, who answered with the meaningful phrase, There is no last word between friends. This same phrase had been uttered by Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan to the Japanese ambassador after California had passed its Yellow Peril Act and American hatred switched from the Chinese to the Japanese after the Russo-Japanese War. Tensions had risen as violence was visited upon Japanese immigrants on the West Coast. Kurusu got the reference immediately, and hope was shared by both sides. Hope of peace. However, Secretary Hall was a horse of a different color. Meaningful phrases were not going to divert war, and that was his job. When he had Caruso in his office, he took the time to remind the new man that Nazi Germany was going to get Japan into all sorts of trouble, and that those in Berlin could not be trusted. He explained, First Japan signed the anti term Pact with Germany, which stood to reason. Both countries viewed Soviet Russia as an adversary, to say the least. But then Germany signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin, and then invaded that very country. It was only a matter of time before Berlin led Japan down a path of total war, a war with the entire Western world. But even more dangerous, if Hitler knocked Russia out of the war, which certainly seemed possible in November of 1941, where did Japan think the Wehrmacht would be heading next? Hitler was no naval man. He would continue to attack where his land-based army could go. Manchukuo, China, Indochina, Japan could very well lose their empire, but not to America, which only wanted to see those countries and territories free to trade with other nations of the world. But for all his salesmanship, Kurusu clearly saw the crux of the matter, the tripartite pact. The U.S. believed that it was only a matter of time before Hitler pressured Tokyo into striking out against the Western powers. Little did they realize that Germany's successes only inspired the Japanese to do what they wanted to do, all on their own. Carve out their own empire and become a dominant nation of the world, as was their self-proclaimed birthright. So Kurusu countered with, even though it was not possible for Japan to simply pull out of the pact, if it could come to some understanding with the United States, then that agreement would outshine its understanding with Berlin and Rome, as in it would carry more weight back in Tokyo. But Hull saw through this and was left with a bad taste in his mouth. The next day, November 18th, Caruso and Hull continued their meeting. This time, Nomura was there, and Caruso picked up again 
on his theme, that an agreement with the United States would outshine Japan's pact with Berlin and Rome. Hull then met them halfway by saying he understood that countries could not simply pull out of major agreements. Numura, elated by this progress, offered up the first part of Plan A. What if Japan pulled its troops out of southern Indochina? Then if the Americans unfroze Japanese assets and allowed Tokyo to once again buy American oil, a path of peace was a very real possibility. But as many in Tokyo had predicted, for Hull, this was Japan giving much too little, certainly for the right to buy American petroleum to keep its war machine going. So he came down hard on his two guests by saying if Japan did withdraw its troops there, it would only use them to continue to occupy more of China, or worse, go after another country, one with the resources that Japan needed. But Nomura countered, feigning a moment of honesty. Japan was tired of its war in China and was looking for a face-saving way out. Perhaps both sides could win if an agreement could be reached. This is what Hall was looking for. If he could not get Tokyo to move away from Berlin and Rome, at least in the immediate future, having them pull out of China would be the next best thing. Therefore, the American agreed to start formal talks with Britain and the Dutch based on what he had just been offered. The two Japanese representatives beamed with delight. Kurusu sent a message to Foreign Minister Togo of their progress. But on that same day, November 18th, the Japanese first air fleet left Kure Harbor near Hiroshima in the far south of Japan for its jumping-off point in the north. The next day, November 19th, despite the supposed progress being made in Washington, Togo's foreign office sent out two messages to all their embassies to prepare them for war, should the Americans not give Tojo what he wanted. It read, Regarding the broadcast of a special message in an emergency. In case of emergency, danger of cutting off our diplomatic relations and the cutting off of international communications, the following warnings will be added in the middle of the daily Japanese-language shortwave news broadcasts. In case of a Japanese-U.S. relations in danger, east wind, rain. Japanese-U.S.S.R. relations, north wind, cloudy. Japanese-British relations, east wind, clear. This signal will be given in the middle and at the end as a weather forecast, and each sentence will be repeated twice. When this is heard, destroy all code papers, etc., this is as yet to be a completely secret arrangement. When our diplomatic relations are becoming dangerous, we will add the following at the beginning and end of our general intelligence broadcasts. If it is Japan-U.S. relations, East. Japan-Russia relations, North. 
Japan-British relations, including Thai, Malaya, and Netherland East Indies. West. The above will be repeated five times and included at beginning and end. On November 26th, the 28-ship task force left Hitokapu Bay of the Kuro Islands and headed into the North Pacific Ocean. Its submarine component stayed about 200 miles ahead of the main fleet, acting as a lookout. Either the weather was going to be horrible, in which case refueling would be dangerous and perhaps impossible, or the skies would be clear, which meant that the armada could be spotted by any ship that just happened to be passing by. The standing order was that if the fleet was detected before December 6th, it was to turn around immediately. The raid on Pearl Harbor would not take place, and the world would never know of what almost happened. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So before I go on and thank some new members and uh, people who have donated trying to help me out during my time of financial distress, um, I just wanted to encourage you to go to whatpods.com. They have listed uh, several World War II podcasts, and they, they put uh, my show on there as well, saying it was one of the best. So thank you very much, whatpods.com. I really appreciate it. So go check it out if you want to see some other great podcasts. Um, and I also want to encourage you to check out a new podcast that I've been enjoying very much, The History of Vikings by Noah Tetzner. Uh, his latest episode, Daily Life During the Viking Age with Anders Winroth. So again, this is a gentleman who's a professor from uh, Yale University. Uh, it was a great show. You really get a sense of uh, what these guys did when they were not pillaging uh, other nations. But it's a show that I've been listening to lately. Really like it a lot, and I think you should check it out, The History of Vikings. Okay, so as far as the new members on board helping support the show, there's Sean M. from Queensland, Australia, Barham S. in Singapore, that's where my brother-in-law is with his family right now, Bransom R. from Eklaka, from Montana, uh, Bransom, uh, there's your chuckle for the day, me trying to say Eklaka, so sorry about that, uh, Michelle C. in Pavia, Italy, where Cam and I will be in 40 days, looking forward to that, we're going to Rome, is it Florence, we're going to, we're going to two different locations in Italy, and uh, as far as donations, Clayton S. Uh, sent a donation, so Clayton, thank you very much for helping out the show, and again, the next couple of episodes will not have ads, so enjoy that, and as you can tell by the dates in this episode, we are getting much closer to Pearl Harbor, and uh, we'll just take it from there. Uh, I'll put, try to put out as many episodes as I can before I go to Europe between July 2nd and July 22nd, and I hope to see a lot of you there. Um, maybe in the future shows, I'll list kind of where I'm going and the date, so if y'all ever want to have a, uh, a chance to talk and say hi, that would be really cool. So uh, I'll put that out on the next episode. Take care, everyone.